For our Old Testament reading this morning, we are in the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Our Old Testament reading this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, and the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after Now, if you would turn to the book of Philippians for our New Testament reading this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verses 18b through 26. Philippians 1, 18b. The Apostle Paul writes, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell." I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit would work within our hearts to apply this truth, to illumine this truth to us, and that we might walk away from this morning uh, in further awe and admiration of what Christ has done for us. We thank you, Lord, that our lives are not vain, but that they are fulfilled in you. And we thank you, Lord, that you give us purpose and lasting purpose at that. Lord, we thank you for this passage this morning, and we pray that you would be honored and glorified in it all. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Death is an alien concept to the average American. Death is hated. Death is spurned. Death is relegated to the deepest, darkest corners of our lives, only to be thought of when necessary, and only for the minimal amount of time. It's here, let's get past it as quickly as we can, seems to be the refrain with regard to death. Death is sanitized through our industrial complex, where in generations past, if you wanted to eat chicken, you would raise chickens. 
I'm sure some of you in this room remember seeing or hearing about your grandmother swinging a hatchet upon the neck of dinner that night. Today, the closest the average American comes to the source of their meat is the styrofoam container in the supermarket with a raw piece of steak in it. Golly, even the, they're even trying to make lab-grown chicken to remove the death of an animal altogether, which seems to be a fairly gross concept to me. What is more, human death is absent from our daily lives. There have not been any soldiers killed in battle on American soil for 160 years. Even the so-called Indian Wars of the Wild West took place far off and away from the average citizen in the United States. Our warriors fall in distant lands, and the only domestic pictures we have is that of a flag-draped closed casket. Fatal acute diseases have largely been eradicated from our common daily living. Gone are the days when mothers would panic because a case of polio was discovered down the street worrying that her child would be next. In the past, there were times when yellow fever and plague would run through cities and towns, leaving two out of every five people in a body bag. Our diseases we have sanitized, replacing the sudden and acute with the chronic and wasting. Dysentery has been replaced with diabetes, cholera with cancer, malaria with myocarditis. This gives us the impression that it is only the elderly that die. And uniquely, since we are unacquainted with death as a culture, we have replaced the natural fear of death with that of safety. Have you noticed that in our American culture? We are obsessed with safety. And it's largely because we have replaced a larger, greater fear with smaller, more abundant fears. If the sinner no longer fears death, then he will manufacture terrors for himself. If we no longer fear the end of our lives, then it leaves room for all the first world troubles that we have. You know the ones. Our phone didn't charge last night. Our food preferences were not met. Our car isn't as nice as our neighbors. And so we manufacture these crises that aren't really all that bad. I could go on and on about how there is no need to fear famine or starvation, shelter and strife, terror and violence, but time would fail us, and I'm only in the introduction. The truth is that we live in a safer and more prosperous and cushy society than any of our ancestors could have ever dreamed of having. And yet we are more fearful, more anxious than ever. Enter the book of Ecclesiastes. By God's grace, we actually have a book in our Bibles that seemingly was written to modern-day Americans. Within these pages, King Solomon instructs us and shows us the utter fleeting nature of life. He looks death square in the face and does not flinch. The book of Ecclesiastes takes an unabashed look at the foolishness of everything that we do under the sun. There is nothing that stands the test of time. There is nothing that is permanent. There is no remembrance of the things in the past. There is nothing new under the sun, he claims. There is nothing that you can do to change the course of this world. In short, you are not important. You are born. You live your life. You work your job for hundreds of thousands of hours. And you die. And the world soon forgets your very existence. Now, as I say this, a question should have popped up in your mind. This guy titled the sermon, The Philippians of the Old Testament. Isn't that known as the most joyous book in the New Testament? 
You are a very astute listener, my friend. I did title this message as such. And I titled it because for all the soberness of this book, there is unspeakable joy within its pages as well. There is untold delight within its verses. Only by plumbing the depths can we be brought to new heights. And in a way, Solomon tears down all the artifices. He tears down the facades that we build up. He tears down the false happiness that we find. He tears down all of what it means that we value in this world, only to give us something that is far better, far greater, far more lasting and permanent. I hope to demonstrate these two things through the balance of our time this morning. The first, we see in this passage the problem of life under the sun. We see the problem of life under the sun in verses 1 through 11. And then we're going to see the solution is life under the sun, S-O-N. See what I did there? So the problem is life under the sun, solar sun, but the solution is life under the sun, namely Jesus Christ himself. So first, let us dig into our passage, the problem of life under the sun, namely vanity. We see this in verses 1 through 11. Look at your, te- your copy of scripture, if you would, at, at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This term preacher is actually the Hebrew word koheleth. And much is made over this. It, it refers to one who is a gatherer. One who collects things together, a preacher or a speaker, one who convenes an assembly. We, we see here Solomon is known as the preacher or the one who gathers people together. And there's a little bit of a double meaning here in that he's not only the one who gathers people, but he's also one who gathers wisdom to give to the people. We do see here that this is a sermon that was preached to the people that originally heard it. What is more, this this preacher is known as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And if you scan down to verse 12, we also read that I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, we have three pieces of information. One, he is a descendant of David, he is king in Jerusalem, and he is king over all Israel. Now, there are only two people who fit this bill. There is Solomon and Solomon's son, Rehoboam. All the other kings after them were kings over Judah in Jerusalem, not all Israel, right? Because Rehoboam split the kingdom. So we're left with these two options, and I would humbly say the only realistic one is Solomon himself. We see Solomon, and I would offer that the occasion of this writing was at the end of his life as a repentance for all the evil, wicked things that he did as king. Yes, he built the kingdom up. Yes, he brought wealth and prosperity. Yes, he he solidified Israel's power as a world power in the region. And yet, he brought a thousand women into his life. Think about that for one moment. You men, 700 wives, 300 concubines. I might have had that reversed in my mind. 300 wives, 700 concubines, thank you. Imagine all of those women in your life, and each one of them brought their household gods. And so we see Solomon, as wise as he is, actually is quite the fool because he brings idolatry into the kingdom of Israel. And this book, Ecclesiastes, I believe he gives at the end of his life as a repentance for all those stupid, foolish, wicked things that he did. And in the pages of Ecclesiastes, he, he, he says from experience all the things that he tried to find value in. 
All the riches and wealth, he tried to find worth, he tried to find position, and at the end of his life, what does he call it? Vanity. It's fleeting. It's nothing. And so we see here a man at the end of his life repenting over many of the sins and and confessing many of the sins that he committed through his tenure as king. But I digress. Let us continue in our text. Verse 2 is the theme verse of the entire book. Verse 2, Solomon says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. We have here an, an emphatic construction in the Hebrew. Vanity full of vanity. Vanity that is vain. This is extra, extra vain. The, the Hebrew word here, you probably, if you have an uh, English Standard Version, you see a footnote here. You see, when it says vanity, it, it's the Hebrew word for vapor. Or the Hebrew word itself is hevel. It, it, it means vapor. It means mist. And it, it, it is a difficult word to translate. There's, there's many different connotations or flavors to the word. Even in the English, the word vanity is a tough one for us to understand. I'm sure when I said vanity, most of your minds flitted to Pilgrim's Progress and Vanity Fair, where there were people absorbed with themselves and obsessed with themselves and and egotistic people that that loved their reflections more than anything else in the world. People obsessed with themselves and their appearance. We carry a negative perception to the word vanity, yet the term, I actually had to look this up, simply means empty. Empty. It simply means futile or of no value. In short, there's no inherent sinfulness within the term vanity, even in English. It's much more neutral than we normally uh, think of it as. This term havel is used 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes alone. It is one of the key words to our understanding of this book. And, And truly, how we view the rest of this book is based upon how we understand this one little word. If it's a negative term, only referring to meaninglessness and and evil, then the whole book takes on a truly depressing, oppressive flair. There are even some that claim that this book is a book of inspired error. Let me say that again. They think that this is inspired error. They believe that what the Holy Spirit is telling us through this book is what not to do. When you read something in this book, you should automatically think, I should not do that. I think that this is a misunderstanding of what this book is all about. That is whatever this book says to do, you as a Christian ought to do the opposite. And and if Havel means useless or meaningless or idolatry, then I can understand this. We could, we could read this verse as idolatry of idolatries, says the preacher. All is idolatry, if that is the way that we take this word. But as I said, it's much more complex than that. It can mean idolatry. It can mean useless. It can mean empty. But it can also mean something far less evil. In a positive way, uh, it could just mean a vapor or a mist. You've all experienced on a cold winter's morning going outside and and breathing out and seeing the vapor come out of your mouth. How long does that last? Just a mere, mere moment. That is precisely what this word encapsulates. It is a mist that is here for a moment and then gone the next. 
And when we understand it in this more neutral sense, all of a sudden the the book of Ecclesiastes is not a book of inspired error, but it's actually one of the most useful, helpful books in how to live the Christian life, especially as Americans in a very, very wealthy, rich culture. Because Solomon was writing this book at the height of Israel's power and wealth and authority, much like America. It seems to have, this word havel, seems to have the core meaning of mist or vapor. And and you can see how this could apply to idols, right? They have the appearance of substance, but are a vanishing nothingness. You could also see how this could be a poetic way of describing the nothingness that is false worship. You could also see how this could speak of the worthlessness of possessions, but it's neutral in and of itself. And within the book of Ecclesiastes, we need to keep this balance Life and all that we do is but a vapor. It is transient. It is fleeting. It is here now and gone in a moment. Our work is vain. Our wealth is vain. Our families are vain. Our parenting is vain. Our marriages are vain. Our friendships are vain. Our cooking is vain. Our cleaning is vain. Remember, it's a neutral term. It just means that it's vanishing. It's here for a while and gone the next. Have you considered the vanity of your marriage? Have you considered that your marriage is not permanent and one day death will cause you to sever that bond? Have you considered that your parenting is vain? That your parenting will stop one day, as many of you know? Wealth is fleeting. Work is fleeting. One commentator described Havel like a bubble. It is a beautiful, shimmering object while it exists. But once it's popped, it's gone into nothingness a moment later. One could write, bubbles of bubbles, says the preacher. Bubble of bubbles, all is a bubble. Here now, gone a moment later, with nothing changed by its vanishing but a memory. The preacher tells us that all is vanity. The totality of our existence is fleeting. Now Solomon is a wise man and he will use the bulk of his book proving verse 2. It stands as the thesis and the foundation for the rest of what he's about to say. The fact that all is fleeting and all is vaporous will will now be proven by the wise man. And and, and I gave you an outline in the insert and, and you can see how he proves his case through the chapters and how he works through the book. In the first 11 verses of chapter 1, he will prove in summary what he will prove by experience and observation in the following chapters. But his first line of evidence in this book comes in verse 3. The first line of evidence, there is no gain in life. Verses 3 through 4. There is no gain in life. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What profit goes to the man? It's actually in an accounting term. What does he gain? What does he earn? What does he keep? What is his at the end of the day that he had not at the beginning? Is there anything that a man adds to his life that is durable, that stands the test of time? When you go to work and work eight hours, what do you have to show for it? Well, many of you would say a paycheck. And I would agree, hopefully you do get a paycheck after eight hours of work. You get a paycheck. You have money, but what do you use the money for? You spend it. 
So you get money to spend money so that you need more money. Do you see the vanity of this? Do you see how this is not lasting gain, but the moment the paycheck comes in, at least part of it is already spent before you knew it. So you work, so you need to work more. What if by God's grace you get a promotion and land that dream job? You may find more fulfillment in it, but there will still be plenty of days where you wish you were not where you are, and there's never any actual satisfaction. There is never any arrival in our work. What if your calling is higher, is a higher one to care for covenant children as a stay-at-home parent? You know more than anyone else in this room just how wearisome the care of little sinners can be. The moment you have conquered one behavior battle, another one creeps up. The moment you have one life skill taught and caught, another one is desperately needed. By God's grace, there is progress, but there is never a rival. The accountant may finish this tax year, but the next will come soon. The firefighter may extinguish one fire, but another will soon blaze. The medical doctor may treat one disease only to, only to know that a terminal one will eventually come. The mother may sweep the floor only to turn around to find another spill. There is such weariness to life under the sun. Perhaps even more depressing is what he says in verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Have you ever considered that there are three generations alive at any given time on the earth? Sometimes four, but primarily three. And as soon as that third generation goes, another one is born. And at any moment in time, there are only three or four generations of people on earth. So if you pass three generations, every single person who is alive right now will be dead. You will live your life, you will die, and another generation will come after you, and your memory and your vain contribution will be forgotten. The Lord will preserve the earth for these generations should he tarry, but you will not be preserved on the face of the earth. With the coming of one generation brings with it the passing of another. With each new birth, we are reminded that there are many who are perishing even as we speak. Speaking of creation, Solomon turns to look at it a bit closer. And we're now going to see that there's no change to creation in verses 5 through 6. There are fixed patterns that the Lord has implanted into his creation, and it does not change. Verse 5, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. My wife's grandpa will be 98 on November 14th this year, Lord willing. That means that the sun will have risen on his life 35,764 times. And it is set that same number, give or take one. 35,764 risings of the sun and settings for one man's life. How many times has the sun risen on your life? Now contemplate how many times this courier of God's grace has run his course over the ages of the earth. Never has he altered his course. Never has he failed to rise. Never has he failed to set. The sun performs his job appointed to him by his creator when he was spoken into being, never to complete it until he is no more in the true sun. Jesus takes its place. There's stability. And yet even the sun itself will prove to have run its course in vain to give way to its creator and sustainer when it is sustained no more. 
Solomon says, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around the wind uh, goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. If you ever have the time, Google global wind patterns and consider the work of our God. Through the sun heating certain parts of the earth more, and the thermal currents combined with the rotational movement of the earth and the impedance of mountain ranges, there is a rich interplay of chaotic weather patterns and completely predictable and stable wind patterns. These last patterns do indeed run a circuit, making giant circles on the face of the planet. This is why the sailing ships could go west at certain parts and then come back going east because they followed different wind currents around the equator and up towards the other tropics. There are predictable wind patterns. They go round and round and round and round. But Solomon once again is observing the world around him and noting that the wind has never finished its journey. Have you ever considered that? The wind does not blow over the Sierra Nevada mountains and say, whew, I finally made it over, and I'm good now. I can stop blowing. There is no goal that the wind strives for. There is no finish line that the wind aims for. There is no mission that it tries to accomplish. The wind blows, and when it blows not, it is no longer wind. It is just air. These fixed patterns are far more stable and far more steady than any one of us in this room. Consider that. The wind is more steady and more stable than you. And even still, the sun will fade and the wind will cease. These two are vain vapors and that vexed this wise man. Continuing this theme, the wise man uses creation to show us more of our vanity. We see that there is no end to work in verses 7 through 8. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Using the illustration of the water cycle, the preacher demonstrates how work never ends. Now, it may have been a while since elementary school, but the water cycle goes like this. Water evaporates off the ocean surface. It rises in the air as water vapor. The air then flows over the land until it hits mountains. And then the air gets pushed up into the cooler parts of the atmosphere until it condenses into clouds of rain or snow or ice. And then that precipitation falls upon the mountains. And then the the rain gathers into creeks at the bottom of the drainages, which run into streams, which run into rivers, which run back into the ocean. Round and round and round, our water goes from the ocean to the mountains back to the oceans. The humorous thing about this imagery is that the preacher observes that all the water flowing from the mighty Mississippi into the Gulf of Mexico does not raise the water level at all. The ocean is never full. The water will continue flowing into the ocean, and the ocean will never be content. It will never rise. It will never fill. The waters never rise because of the rivers and streams flowing into them. The ocean is not satisfied. It continues to drink in more water, as it were. Just a funny story that I heard last week. Apparently, there is a group of conservationists who are attempting to refill the Great Salt Lake in Utah. And do you know how they're doing it? With bottled water. I just thought that was the perfect illustration of the futility of man. 
The vanity of man expecting to bring a liter bottle of water to the great salt lake, pour it in, and expect something to happen. But in the same way, our work is just about as foolish as those people. The water keeps flowing, never resting for long. So too man works and toils and labors at his work. And yet none of them can ever solve the problem, the true problem that man faces, and that is the problem of death. Can you hear the exasperation in verse 8? All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Never in the history of the world has an eye said to its master, You know, I think I've seen all that I need to see, and I'm good not seeing any more. I'm just going to take a break. I am satisfied. Last I checked, my wife after visiting the Grand Canyon, Pastor Scott after going to Great Basin National Park, and all the people I've spoken to who have visited Yellowstone still have eyes that desire to see yet more. The eye is never satisfied with seeing. In like manner, people walking out of a beautiful symphony have never, not suddenly gone deaf because their ears have had their fill of beauty. Quite the contrary, actually. When you see something beautiful or you hear something spectacular that affects you to your core, often the response is a desire for more, not less. When you come away from a sweet time of fellowship, when you have heard a particularly impactful sermon or even watched a compelling drama, there's a little bit of an emptiness that you feel. A desire for more. A wanting of more and more and more. This is the precise illustration that the preacher is drawing our attention to. In our labors, even when we do well, there is yet more and more a desire for more. It is full of weariness. And tragically, we cannot change even this. Next, the preacher tells us that there is no true innovation. There is no true innovation. And this sounds hard to many of our American ears. Now, I may have lost some of you when I say that there's no true innovation. You might say, is not the light bulb, the airplane, the computer, the smartphone a true innovation? Solomon would would not have dreamed of the technological advances that we have made. Surely you are wrong by saying there is no new innovation. Well, bear with me a little folly, if you will, and suppose and examine and, and look at the light bulb. What is the light bulb? What are these light bulbs that we are sitting underneath? They're illumination devices. Is not a light bulb a better version of a wax candle, which was a better version of an oil lamp, which was a better version of a fire, which is a better version of the sun, which, by the way, is not new? I behold, I present to you a better version of the sun. That is not true innovation. At its core, light bulbiness, the light bulb is merely a tiny sun that illuminates what you are working on. It's far more efficient than a campfire, and yet it is not something truly new. Take the smartphone. Surely there is nothing more quintessentially modern and innovative than the iPhone. But what is the core utility of a phone? It's a reading device, is it not? The smartphone is a better computer for its portability, which is a better book for its versatility, which is a better version of storytelling for its stability. We have traded storytelling for the phones that we have in our hands. Yes, it can do lots of different things, but none of them are truly new. 
And yet, where I think we would all agree that a light bulb makes our lives easier, the smartphone, in many ways, makes our lives actually much worse, does it not? The temptation for pornography is merely a tap away. The temptation of adultery is a swipe away. What is more, studies are showing that we as a people are getting more and more stupider, yes, I left that in, by the year, because the smartphone allows us to no longer need to remember things. From directions to facts and figures, there's an app for that where we used to have a brain for that. New medications are merely more effective in some respects than herbal or dietary alternatives our ancestors had. New policies and politics are merely Rome redivivus. New styles are merely the old tweaked and changed a little. One social commentator noted that the mark of a decadent society is that there is nothing new or innovative. And this stands for all cultures that have ever walked the face of the planet. Have you noticed that the number of remakes has skyrocketed in the last decade? There is nothing new under the sun, and especially for a culture as twisted and perverse as ours. And yet for all of these innovations, once again, they do not stand as true innovations because they cannot fix the one problem that every man, woman, and child faces, the problem of death and permanence. There's no technology that will save your life. It may prolong it, but it will not save it. Are you feeling a little bit depressed yet? Well, we have one more point before we can get to the good news, so buckle up. There is no lasting legacy in verse 11. There is no lasting legacy. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, says the preacher, yet to be among those who come after. We are a horribly forgetful people, and as one philosopher astutely noted, he who forgets history is doomed to repeat it. It would be all too easy to make comments about our nation and culture, but let us drill down to the personal level for a bit. How many of your eight great-grandparents can you name? And for those of you who can name the majority of your eight great-grandparents, how about your 16 great-great-grandparents? These people were directly involved in giving you life, and you cannot even remember their very names. I know two of the names of my great-grandparents, but not much else. I don't know what they contributed to the family tree. I don't know who they were. I don't know even what professions they had. I know that some of them emigrated to America because I am here in America, so obviously someone had to come here uh, from Europe. But I don't know much about these people, and they are directly responsible for giving me life. The vast majority of us have no clue even three generations back And if we cannot remember their names, what makes you think, oh man, that your great-grandchildren will remember your name, let alone what you have done in life? We can become so fixated upon leaving a legacy for our descendants, and no doubt our children will remember. They will remember, but it, it may be that they tell a couple of tales of their time with you as their children to your grandchildren, but how few of those tales will actually be remembered of your life to your progeny? who call you their great-grandfather or great-grandmother. The sad truth for us is that your legacy will be forgotten by your own kin. You will fade from memory. If you are a great man or great woman who does great things, you may have a line or two in a history book, but no one will know you as a person. What you are working for will fade like the vapor with your passing. 
There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. How are you doing? Do you feel the despair of the vanity of life that Solomon is working with? All that we are trained to love in this culture is fleeting and passing away. There is no substance to it. There is no permanence to it. There is nothing lasting. You're probably asking yourself, why on earth would he title this sermon the Philippians of the Old Testament? This is the most depressing sermon ever. Well, we're not done yet. And we're about to launch into the good news of this. By the way, just a little historical factoid for your information. Within the Jewish culture, various books of the Old Testament were associated with certain feasts. So at certain feasts, they would read certain books year in and year out. And the book of Ecclesiastes was the Old Testament scripture assigned to the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Harvest Festival, the most joyous feast in the Jewish calendar year. I find that interesting, don't you? That they would take the book of Ecclesiastes, the vanity of life, and associate it with the most joyous celebration that they have in the year. That should help us to understand this book a little bit more. This is only the beginning of this precious book of scripture. We have seen the problem of life under the sun, namely that it is fleeting, fading, faltering. Yet this is not where the book ends. Turn with me, if you would, to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. Turn to chapter 12 of the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going all the way to the very last paragraph, verses 13 and 14. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 and 14. And it is here that we see the solution life, to life under the sun, namely Jesus. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let me read that again. The end of the matter has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The end of the matter. This is the summary statement. This is the final, most important words that the preacher has to say to us. He says, all has been heard. Well, we haven't heard everything, but you can read the book of Ecclesiastes this afternoon if you wanted to hear the rest of the matter or the rest of the story, as it were. Go read the book for yourself to hear or stay tuned over the course of the year. But this is the end of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. Fear God. This, this is not the terror of a sinner in the hands of an angry God, but this is a godly reverential fear. This is a a filial fear. This is the fear that a child has towards his father. This is the fear that that a, a inferior has towards a superior, but the superior is a loving, kind, and gracious one. This, this fearing of the Lord, the fear of God, this, reverence, this is reverencing God for who he is. It is honoring him as God. It is acknowledging him as the Savior, the one who is gracious and abounding in loving kindness. But this fear can only happen through the transforming work of the gospel. Because you see, we as vain humans created in the image of God and yet in Adam are fallen and deserving of wrath and judgment. And in fact, the last verse even speaks of the judgment that the Lord will bring. But we may fear God because he solved our problem. 
We, through our technology, we, through our culture, we, through our philosophy, cannot solve the problem of death and our guilt, but God did solve that problem. We see here that God, in the fullness of time, sent forth his Son, being born in the likeness of man, being born under the law, to keep the law on our behalf, so that he might die upon a cross to redeem us of our sin and guilt and misery. And as a result, we might fear him aright. We might fear him as children adopted and chosen and elected unto salvation. We might fear him as regenerate, natural-born children under the, in the second Adam. We might fear him as one who has no terror of abandonment, but as respect and awe and gratitude for one who has reached down and made us right. Michael Reeves makes the comment about this fear. Yet all should be encouraged. For the nature of the living God means that the fear which pleases him is not some groveling, shrinking fear. He is no tyrant. It is an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, good and true our God is. And that therefore leans on him in staggered praise and faith. This is the fear that John Newton wrote about. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." You see, we are to fear God, and in our fear, worship, love, and admiration of our Savior, we are fulfilling our chief duty of man. What is more, Solomon says to fear God and keep his commandments. Love and obey, there is no other way. Only again, this is made possible through the new birth and the transforming grace to keep his commandments. We must be regenerate in order to keep his commandments, even faultingly and failingly. It is by his kindness and through his spirit that he enables us and empowers us to do the good works that he set before the foundations of the world that we should walk in. We may only keep his commandments if we fear him, and we may only fear him aright if we are saved by the work of Christ. Now, in these final words, I I hope you hear the echo of Westminster Shorter Catechism question one, right? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Or to adapt it a little bit to our context, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to fear God and keep his commandments. This is why Ecclesiastes is such a difficult book for so many Because it must be taken as a whole. You have to read the end and the beginning. It's a book of wisdom. It's something that you have to chew on and chew and chew. It's something that you have to mull over and think through and and really dwell upon. We we say that we need the context for books like Romans and the, the epistles of Paul in the New Testament. And it is entirely true that we need to keep the context in mind. But, but if we don't and we parachute into Romans, we can usually get something close to what Paul said. But in Ecclesiastes, there are people that go wildly off course because they do not keep the book as a whole in their mind. And with this in mind, let us revisit our opening verses very fast, very fast. I know we are short on time. And let us see how this solution transforms our understanding of what Solomon is writing. Go back to verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. With the exception of fearing God and keeping his commandments, right? 
We have just learned that fearing God and keeping his commandments is not vain. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity except fear God and keep his commandments. This herein is permanence. Verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Nothing at all, as we saw, yet the true man, Jesus, gained much by his toil. Indeed, he gained everything by his toil in which he toiled under the sun. Think back to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God under the sun, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself under the sun by taking the form of a servant under the sun, being born in the likeness of men under the sun, and being found in human form under the sun. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, never ever to be forgotten from the memory of man. Man left to his own devices gains nothing, but Christ gains everything. What is more, in his gain, we benefit, and our toil is now made worthwhile unto the praise of his glory. Paul again in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Listen to the apostles' hope. So that in the day of Christ... I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The apostle's hope was that his ministry would not be full of vanity. That his ministry would not be vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But that his ministry would have a lasting, eternal impact upon the people of God for God's glory. Verse 4 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The lineage of the first Adam certainly fades away, but the generations of the second Adam abide forever. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The earth fades, but we remain in Christ. Back to Ecclesiastes, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. And we talked about the vanity of the wind, yet the wind accomplishes the purposes that its creator and sustainer requires. Indeed, even the solar circuit was altered for God's glory and for his purposes when we consider that the sun was darkened on that Friday so long ago when the sun failed to shine his light upon the sun hanging upon the cross. Solomon writes, All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there there they flow again. Yet Christ is the fullness, the completion. He is the one who fills all in all. There is nothing wanting in Christ. There is no dissatisfaction in Christ. 
Christ is satisfied. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. All things are full of weariness, says Solomon. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Yet in him, in Christ, we do not grow weary, but we are strengthened day by day. Hebrews 12.3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. What is more, our eyes will one day be fully satisfied. Have you ever thought of that? Your eyes will see a sight and a wonder, and your eyes will say, Hallelujah, what a Savior, I am good now. Revelation 21. And I heard a voice, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And what Moses' eyes so eagerly longed for, we shall experience with our eyes, and they shall be fully satisfied when in Revelation 22, verse 4, we shall see his face. What has been done is what will be done. And what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It, is already, it has been already in the ages before us. And yet there is something new. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This was something new under the sun. Where Solomon says there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after, there is great remembrance of what Christ has done. And again, by his grace, he has made our lives matter in him. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Or in the words of Maximus Decimus Aurelius, what we do in life echoes into eternity. Man forgets, but God remembers. Can you see why this book can be called the Philippians of the Old Testament? This book so thoroughly tears down all our false American dreams and ideals only to rebuild them in a far grander and better way. Let us delight in the fact that Christ has redeemed us and given us a purpose. Our lives are meaningful only as long as they find their meaning in him. We've been rescued from the pits of despair, the fears of this world only to be given a new and better mission from our kindly sovereign. Let us pray.